the blast from our past network. Hello and welcome to the Blast From Our Past podcast, where the podcast that gives you full-on movie breakdowns, TV show reviews, and a whole lot more, all from the things of our nostalgic past. I'm Adam. I'm John. And today we have got an awesome episode for everybody. We are bringing back our cross-network, I don't know, how, how, do we, how do we describe this, John? Like our... Event? Yeah, cross-network event. <laughs> no, it's like, <laughs> last year we did a... Um, uh, like a, we did a spotlight on a director. So yeah. our network spotlight, director spotlight. How about that? I like that. Yeah. So last year we did Kevin Smith, where uh, multiple podcasts across the Beef Up Network did some Kevin Smith films. We did Clerks. Mm-hmm. Podcast After Dark did Mallrats. I think uh, was it OCD did did Chasing Amy at the time. Yes. Yes. So, but this time we have picked a different director. And uh, that is the famed and one most one of the most biggest box office directors of all time, James Cameron. Ooh. And uh, woo, oh yeah, uh, his birthday is coming up on August sixteenth, and this episode is dropping a day before that. So we wanted to wish him a very happy birthday, and so we're going to be doing multiple different James Cameron flicks across the Beef Up Network, and so uh, some of the ones that we've got coming up. It's obviously the abyss is dropping today with us. Uh, you can check out Talking Back for Terminator Two. That should be out uh, the following day from this one dropping. They actually already did Terminator, so they're building themselves up to it, which actually works out really well. Uh, Podcasting After Dark is doing Aliens. Uh, if you want to also hear other Aliens episodes, John and I did one with Corey. Um, we did a whole Aliens one, which was great, as well as I think Talking Back did. They've done a whole Aliens uh, and and did Predator tie-in stuff through their shows. So check yeah. out if you can't get enough aliens, you can always find it on some of our other shows. And then also action action is going to be doing the biggest movie of all time. They are going to take on avatar. Yeah. They recently took the uh, title back, didn't they? Yes, they did. They, they re-released um, <laughs> like a year ago or two years ago, whatever it was um, just to try and, get back on top <laughs> of the Avengers Endgame. Just, it's like a, you know, just, I guess, a little F you or something. I don't know, but it's funny. So. It wasn't petty at all. No, not petty at all. <laughs> so, But yeah, so those are the shows we've got going on. We uh, have a massive appreciation for James Cameron, and, and his films have meant a lot to us. And of the ones that I just mentioned, Avatar, Aliens, Terminator, or Terminator 2 anyway, other than Titanic, which is also, you know, one of his biggest movies of all time, yeah. The Abyss is what we're talking about. I don't expect people to know The Abyss as much as they know some of those other titles that I just mentioned. Maybe not in general, but I'm often surprised at how many people actually remember this movie. I mean, I think it was groundbreaking for its time, particularly on visual effects and mm-hmm. some other stuff like that. And so people in you know who, who watch films normally should absolutely know The Abyss, but... John Q. Lawnmower guy um, may not know the abyss, you know, because he, he doesn't get as much. Um, it doesn't get as much play compared to the other ones. Yeah, I think I think Gen Xers and elder millennials will mostly remember this movie. Anyone mm-hmm. older or younger may not have seen this, yeah. especially younger. Fair enough. All right. So uh, besides the abyss. Again, we are sticking with James Cameron. Um, we are going to be reviewing the 2000 to 2002 
uh, action drama that James Cameron wrote and produced and he created, and that was Dark Angel, if anybody remembers that one. And then we are going to be doing a recasting of The Abyss using actors of today. So very excited about this. Uh, this was a movie that we watched for sure when we were younger. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into it. Um, but for now, I really want to get into that feeling of 1989, the year of Taylor Swift's birth. Um, John, that's really <laughs> important to me. <laughs> but uh, get, get our, set our minds back to 1989. All right, so the movie was released on August 9th of 19, 1989. I wrote down 1998 because I'm apparently dyslexic, which is news to yeah. me. Earlier in that summer, there was another movie that was released that is also big in our hearts and one that we've actually already talked about, but the soundtrack to that movie had a couple of big songs, and this one was topping the charts the week of the release of The Abyss, and that was Bat Dance by Prince. God, we've talked Batman, and the movies is really good, and the rest of the soundtrack is really good, but Bat Dance is trash. It's it's a number one's hit for Prince, but it's the worst goddamn song in Prince's entire catalog. <laughs> I generally agree with you. Yeah, I think most people do. The funny thing is, I, I don't know how it got to number one, but yeah, you go back and listen to it and watch the music video, it's like, oh, oh God, it's cringe. <laughs> Topping the Nielsen ratings that week was a very well-known sitcom with a lead actress who unfortunately has had some sketchy views recently, and that was Roseanne. Okay. All right. I was completely expecting you to say Cosby Show at the beginning, but uh, uh, Roseanne, yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, In video games that month, uh, a game was released that was called Dragon Warrior when it was released, but is now known as Dragon Quest. I feel like I've heard of that. It's an RPG. I've definitely heard of it. I don't think I've ever played it, though. Okay. Uh, New York Times bestseller for that week was a book called Polar Star by Martin Cruz Smith. And my fun fact for 1989, uh, there was a Russian psychic by the name of E. Frinkle uh, who had previously, quote-unquote, successfully stopped a car in a streetcar and then was promptly run over by a train when attempting to stop it with his mind. <laughs> I have no pity for that man's <laughs> death. Like, really? Yep. Okay. All right. That was 1989. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to dive into the unknown a little bit here, a little get into our sci-fi mindset, and talk the abyss. The Abyss, 1989, written and directed by James Cameron. Music was done by Alan Silvestri. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Talked about him not too long ago with Summer Rental. Other ones I already brought up before, but Flat of the Navigator, Who Framed Framed Roger Rabbit, Mac and Me, Fern Gully, Sidekicks. Those are movies we talked about, and those aren't even his big ones. Oh, yeah. And the soundtrack for this, uh, I think, is great. It really is. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, I think this is a strong one um, that he kind of... There's a lot of... A lot of use of choir. 
Yes, I was gonna say yeah. Voice um, harmonics was what I was, how was I gonna put it, but yeah. but harmonics you can have in other things, but like yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. Um, yeah, angelic voices. That yeah. was very well put. Uh, the cast in this one, uh, really, there's three main actors. Uh, you'll get uh, Bud is played by Ed Harris. You've seen him in Apollo 13, Truman Show, the current Westworld show, The Rock, lots of stuff. Um, Lindsay is played by Mary Elizabeth Mastran. Oh, my God. Mastrantonino. How would you pronounce that? Mastrantonino? Uh, Mastran- yeah. Yeah. Mastrantonino. <laughs> Um, I remember her best, and I'm sure you do as well, as Maid Marian in Prince of, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Oh, absolutely. And then Lieutenant Coffee is James Cameron's favorite actor, um, Michael Bean, who you guys have seen in Aliens and Terminator. Uh, he was also in The Rock as well. Uh, he's mm-hmm. been plenty of stuff. This movie had a budget of, I saw both around $45 million, but then possibly 90 or possibly $70 million. Um, so it's maybe somewhere around then, like where the total budget was, uh, and it only it grossed ninety million. So this was not a massive hit. Yeah, which is kind of surprising, but I don't know. I I, I can't remember when we saw it. We obviously I don't think we saw this in the theater. No, that's a good question as to you know yeah how do you remember the abyss? It's really tough to remember exactly how we're introduced to some of these ones. I only had the only remembering remembrance I have of this is watching this at home, and I can't remember if this was something that was on TV often that we watched, or I think we had a recorded version of it, a VHS that was recorded off of TV or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe we bought it. I don't think so. It was probably one of those ones that was just recorded off an HBO yeah. weekend or something like that. But I remember watching it quite a bit, so it's definitely one that we had. I remember that too. And I feel like maybe I lean with this movie more more with Dad that we watched it at his house or something. That sounds right. Okay. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. But, yeah, it was definitely one that, that you know, I think I think our dad liked this movie. And so I think he put it on. Um, and so we ended up watching it because of that. Yeah. So. Uh, this film, as I already mentioned, was pretty good, well lauded for its visual effects. It actually won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. Uh, Well-deserved. Mm-hmm. And apparently the idea for this movie came to James Cameron when he was 17 because in high school he attended a science lecture about deep sea diving by a guy his name was Francis Fallage I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce his <laughs> name um, but he was apparently the first human to breathe fluid through his lungs in experiments conducted um, at the time so he uh, Cameron you know, met with this guy because guess what people oxygenated fluid that you'll see in this one is a legit thing. Is it really? It's really is. So it's not really a legit thing for humans all that much. They don't really do it, but I mean, they've, they have tested it. Obviously this guy did do that. Uh, but uh, anyway, James Cameron wrote a short story focused on a group of scientists in a lab at the bottom of the ocean, like based on, mm-hmm. you know, after he uh, saw this guy. Yeah. Do you want me to spoil a little thing for you? Sure. That rat scene is real. Really? Legit. Like that wow. they actually held that rat in oxygenated fluid. That's amazing. And Harris, no, because they said the testing isn't really or the the it's too dangerous for humans. 
but they do do testing in in rats and that was they actually that rat was legit breathing liquid in that scene. wow <laughs> i'm getting nuts that that brings my level of respect to the movie uh up a little bit um mm-hmm. but also uh, down a little bit for actually torturing the rat by <laughs> well <laughs> i mean he's you know it's a breathing. rat it's a rat Ouch. PETA is not a friend of the Blast from Our Past podcast, I guess. Uh, I have my own issues with PETA. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right. Um, one other thing before I go into start starting the scene-by-scene breakdown is this movie um, apparently had a lot of strained and difficult production. Like, James Cameron can be a very demanding director, and underwater filming has its own difficulties. <laughs> and, like, allegedly... Almost 40% of this film was filmed underwater. Jeez. So, they, I mean, the actors had to deal with a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but on top of that, um, well, yeah, even, even including in the fact that, like, Ed Harris pretty much doesn't even talk about The Abyss. And when he's asked, well, not, not about the movie, but when he's asked about production, he just doesn't want to talk about it. And um, Mary Mastrantonio, I'll pretty much also say is the movie is great, but the act of filming it was not and like and she she's just these people don't will not work with james cameron again because uh the stress he put them under wow so i'm not yeah. that surprised to be honest i've i mean i've heard stories so yeah it actually even put some stress on james cameron's marriage uh he was married to producer gail ann hurd who was the producer on this film at the time they got married back in 85 um but with all the stress of this one making this film during uh, they separated like during the pre-production of the film while he was, while they were working on that. Mm-hmm. And then they divorced right after principal principal photography finished. So, although I think they continued to work together even after, even after this, it's possible. So maybe like their relationship um, isn't, well, isn't, you know, wasn't that strange. Sometimes but. money is stronger than love. <laughs> oh, I'd say more than sometimes, man. <laughs> um, a lot of times. Uh, yeah, she, she worked on Terminator Genesis, who I think James Cameron did some stuff on Genesis anyway. Okay. But yeah, they, they probably did. Oh yeah, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, she was executive producer, and that was after this one. Yeah. So, cool. All right, let's get into the film. We start off in a submarine. Uh, we see the military is finding something moving super fast. They don't know what the hell it is. Um, and then it kind of gets to them. And we all see a little bit of a light, and their sub goes dark. Almost like an EMP hits Mm -hmm. it. When the sub kind of gets back up and going, they end up crashing into a seawall, and it goes down. They're all dead. Whew. You just see it kind of flooding in, and they're screwed. Man, that's scary. Like, I know I got to call out um, Brian McClure, who's uh, one of the the friends of the podcast, one of the patrons. And he said he 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 was in the Navy, and he was on a sub for years. That's just fucking nuts. I don't think I could handle that. No, I can't. I can't really handle enclosed spaces like that, especially for uh-huh. that long amount of time. Well, neither of us are fit enough to be in the Navy exactly. anyway, and so those small—they <laughs> wouldn't accept, uh, you know, our big boy butts. We wouldn't be able to fit through those little, you know, the doors that they've got. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Um, we see some uh, military people and. We also meet Lindsay, who is referred to as the queen bitch of the universe, uh, coming to this big ship called the Explorer. Two people on the Explorer that I have to to call out as actors. We see Chris Elliott 
quite a bit. Yeah, and in a, in a role that is very non-comedic, essentially. Exactly, and he's really good at those side comedic roles. Um, there's something about Mary kind of comes to my mind first, but he's got a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, and then also, Ken Jenkins is one of the other officers, or not officers on, because it's not a military ship, the um, uh, Explorer that they're they're kind of coming on to, to, to take over. Uh, do you recognize Ken Jenkins, John? Absolutely. Uh, from Scrubs. Yes, it's Dr. Kelso. Yeah. So it's good to see him and other stuff, you know, back in the day. Oh, yeah. Because it gets people get so ingrained into, into like one character sometimes. It's like, oh damn, I forgot you actually are a legit actor <laughs> that does other things. Yeah. Um, then we kind of meet Bud and our crew in this underwater rigger. So the explorer and this underwater uh, big rig thing. Um, they're all they're, they're oil rigger guys. They're oil drillers or whatever. And Bud, you know, they're all kind of like uh, the everyman. You know, they're very blue collar workers and whatnot. Uh, the Navy is basically commandeering their crew to help search for survivors and to go after this sub that went down. Um, and they bring over some Navy SEALs to lead the mission. And that's where we meet Lieutenant Coffey and his group. We find out that uh, Queen Bitch Lindsay um, and Bud were married once as they kind of uh, greet each other over the uh, over like a screen and video chat that they had. And should we find out that she designed that whole rig and they are not fans of each other right now, um, but also that she is going down and she's going to be leading this mission because she knows the whole rig better than anyone else. So yeah. we see that uh, Lieutenant Coffee he gets down there. They start talking about all this stuff like um, I can't remember what the uh, what the term is, the scientific term that they called it at the time. But it was something that's like it screws with you um, if you can't handle like the, the, the pressure or something like that. Oh, yeah. Um, they call it pressure-induced psychosis later, but there was a, a different thing. The, being underwater and all that stuff, I don't know how, how true some of that stuff is, but, like, if you come up too quick, like, you know, pressure between, you know, the bends or whatever they call it this way, right. like, you know, that's that's a totally different thing. But being way down underwater, like, humans aren't meant for that, and that's why, that's why we uh, we have to kind of – we've outsmarted that, but it's interesting. So, But he's kind of got, like, shaky hands or whatnot, so we know he's something's fucked up with him. But uh, Lindsay and Bud butt heads as well, uh, and he's all pissed off about just, you know, her being around and dealing with her. Then he throws his wedding ring into the toilet. Then he goes back and gets it, and he has to dig it out, and it's just kind of funny. I always like he pulls out his hand with that big ad that's just blue all yeah. over his arm. And it's pretty much so. blue for the rest of the movie. Yeah, I, I guess I did. <laughs> well, good. They, I, didn't, I didn't really pay attention to that, but it's good that they kept that continuity. I didn't so. notice it again until later when you see his hand... Uh, and like much later in the movie, and it's still like got residual blue on it. Which I mean, so I mean, it shows like yeah, all this is within pretty much one night. Yeah, short amount of time. I think that happens. Yeah, but I think the fact that he goes back and he grabs that ring, it shows that he still cares for her. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's not. He's not over her. He still loves her. So. All right, they're gonna go out and go try to find that sub. Um, here we find out about the fluid breathing system from one of the guys. And this is just absolutely one of the most, one of the more memorable. There's a couple really memorable scenes. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is one of them um, where the Navy SEAL grabs the pet rat of hippie and he puts them in this uh, oxygen rich liquid. And it's scary at first, you know, you seriously, you think that the rat's going to drown um, as does hippie obviously and whatnot. And then the rat starts to breathe. There he goes. So there's a bit of anxiety here. 
Now he's starting to relax. He's breathing fine. See his chest moving? Getting plenty of oxygen. <laughs> Damn rats breathing that shit. That is no bullshit. Hands down. The goddamnest thing I ever saw. And yeah, I had to look it up and I was just like, holy shit. That is real. Um, but yeah, it's too dangerous for them to do it on Ed Harris or for, you know, uh, you know, regular humans typically. But uh, yeah, that was that was a legit thing that happened. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think they wasn't really torturing the rat. It was just having it learn to breathe this other way. Yeah. So, yeah, it was cool. Out in the water, they do find the sub and they're kind of taking photos of it. One interesting thing when they were out in the water you know, they're not wearing regular scuba suits because scuba suits, you have like big goggles and a big mouth breathing thing that um, covers up most of your, your mouth and things like that. But James Cameron, he's very innovative. That's one thing that you can always say he does with any of these like big projects that he works on. He's almost always creating some type of new technology or pushing for new boundaries mm-hmm. on the technical aspects of things. Um, and so what he really wanted is he wanted to see the actors' faces while underwater and still be able to hear their dialogue. And so he had to hire this kind of uh, engineering and robotics company to design helmets that wouldn't fog over um, and also wouldn't obscure their faces. And then also, and then they added also microphones so that way they could actually do their acting. It's not dubbing under there. Huh. Like and any other film... When you're in like that kind of situation, you're just going to be getting like the motions and, and then you're going to, you know, bring the audio into a sound booth later and they're going to dub on top of it. Right. But they actually he was like, no, 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 I want real acting even out in the water. So they had to find out a way to get to see their faces and get their audio in an underwater suit. So that's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's it's um, <laughs> it's definitely not something I could ever just even envision being able to to, to make happen. You know, where I, I mean, you know, my whole mentality is just like, okay, I'll figure out what I can do with what I have. And James Cameron's like, no, fuck this. I know what I want. And we're going <laughs> to change the world until we get that. Yeah. So, and he's clearly had an obsession with uh, the ocean and the deep. Yeah. That a was a whole big thing I remember as well. Didn't like he, um, I think he set a Guinness World Record. Yes. Exactly. I can't remember when that was, like in the 90s. Uh, like no, I, I want to say it was more recent than that. Anyway, I'll look it up oh, while okay, you're maybe. talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right. I do remember hearing, yeah, that he uh, really he had to go really deep. So, all right. They enter the sub. They see dead people around. Um, and the creepiest shot, which I absolutely, once they got onto it, I, I remembered it, is when they see this one of these, these uh, Navy guys, these submariners. Died. He had crabs, and one of the crabs like goes out of his mouth, and it's just like, ugh. Um, so uh, one of our oil rigger guys, Jammer, is having trouble with it. So Bud goes on, tells him to stay put. When he stays put, he sees this creature, and it's got a whole bunch of you know lights, and it's kind of you know he ends up freaking out. He starts having a seizure, and oh shit, things are having problems. Lindsay also sees like a weird fast light at this time, but uh, you know they have to rush back to the main rig to get this guy, you know, out of the water, and he is unfortunately now in a coma. So I looked it up. Uh-huh. Uh, 2012. Oh, that was, yeah, much more. Yeah, 2012, he made the first solo dive to the bottom of Challenger Deep, which is the deepest part of the Marianas Trench. Ooh. Made it all the way to the bottom, 35,787 feet below sea level. Jesus. 
35,000. Yeah, yeah 35,000 feet. Yeah, because like in this movie, we get later and they're talking about like 17,000 other stuff. And that seems intensely deep already. Right. Wow. I did remember watching, I did watch a uh, interview of him talking about that. And he was basically in this tiny little thing that he was basically bunched up in a ball. Like he couldn't stand up. He wasn't sitting. He was basically crouched in like the fetal position in a sitting <laughs> position all the way down. For like yeah. I don't know how many hours it took him to get down there, but he like he couldn't move. Yeah, like that, that is sense. my nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, that is six point six three miles oh, below geez. sea level. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. Um, actually, I did look up like, oh, how is the deepest a human body could go? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was doing this, because it's like, wow, they're talking about seventeen thousand feet. Is that even really possible? Obviously, it is, because he went thirty-five thousand or seventeen thousand, and then James Cameron went thirty-five thousand. Um, they, from what I read, anyway, is, I mean, humans haven't obviously gone uh, as far as as the humanly possible, mm-hmm. but due to the amount of pressure, it's theorized around twenty-two miles below sea sea level is the farthest we could go because of um, the amount of pressure would break the human bone. And it, you just kind of, you would collapse in your, into yourself. Does it, that, so. Honestly, that seems a lot further than I thought. Yeah, me too. Me too. So I don't know. Are we, are, we, and we're, are we just talking about like towards the center of the earth where the gravity is the heaviest? Or are we talking about underwater where the pressure is? I think I looked underwater. So, okay. but I don't even know, I don't even know if there's a spot that goes that deep. I, you know, I don't, I have no clue. Okay. Cause it seems, cause James Cameron was in a vessel. He wasn't yeah. he wasn't in like a suit or anything like that. I imagine in a suit True. the depth is not near that. No, pro- probably not. Probably not. So. And I was just looking up like it's whatever I could find on Google. Okay. So who knows how fucking true it is. <laughs> the Navy SEALs then get instructions from their bosses to move into phase 2. Oh shit. They're going to have to take one of the nukes from the sub and arm it and then await further instructions. So Basically, the Navy guys are thinking that the uh, Russians are involved with with however this sub uh, got taken out, and et cetera, et cetera. And so they're obviously going to be worried about that. Uh, I never did, never watched the director's cut special edition of this one. I don't know about you. Have you? Did you watch that? No. No. Okay. Allegedly, there's um you know a, a, like a four hour cut oh, or Jesus. something like cl- or close to that. Uh, that James Cameron, I think, put out. But basically, there was a lot more of the tensions between commies and the U.S. and whatnot and all of that kind of stuff that that dived into or that this film kind of got into. But it cut out. And it, honestly, it's two hours and 20 minutes, and it's plenty yeah. long enough as it is. Yeah. So, But anyway, uh, the news cr- the uh, the Bud's crew kind of hears on the news uh, about this whole kind of situation that they're into. Now they're worried that it's going to be another Cuban missile crisis kind of thing, um, all while the Navy SEALs leave to go get the warhead. And we still see Coffee is shaking, and he's uh, just kind of gradually getting a little bit, you know, a little bit more out there, paranoid, if you will. Um, so now they got that, and now there's a fucking nuclear warhead on board. So, <laughs> some pe- you know, people don't know this yet, but they're kind of getting freaked out, or they're, you know, we know that as the audience, so... Um, and then, of course, at this time, to add extra drama, there's a hurricane that is coming right where they're at. And so that's causing issues. It ends up fucking going cr- crazy on the uh, Explorer thing that is attached to the uh, rig underneath. And so it ends up ripping off this crane from a top that comes down 
almost hits their underwater rig, but it misses. Whew! And then it falls over <laughs> a little like side uh, and goes further down, which ends up pulling the rig a bit down with it and also just causing haywire. It's like ripping shit apart, and now everything is busting up. Um, water is flooding in. Hippie almost loses his little rat friend, but he's able to save it, so yay for that. <laughs> but uh, we see one of the other seals gets kind of basically knocked down pretty good and busts his leg. Um, and then, you know, we Bud loses some of his crew. Like, that's an intense spot where he's trying to get the guy to open up one of the doors, and he's like, cut the hose, I can't open it up, and the guy's just on the other side drowning. And yeah. it's like, fuck, John, I do not want to go out that way. No. I could tell you. Yeah. Drowning is and in, in losing your oxygen and not being able to breathe is probably just one of the more intense mind fuck ways to, to go. I don't think I don't think I want to do it. So I'm probably not going to go uh, scuba diving anytime soon. I'm probably not going to go up into space anytime soon. <laughs> I'll just probably, you know, just just hang out, hang out in the breathable air uh, areas of Earth. That sounds that sound good to you. That sounds fair. That sounds fair. Yeah. So um, Bud almost gets stuck as well. But a good little callback. He uh, he tries to hold open one of the doors and his wedding ring, which is made of must have been like the most hardest damn metal ever, um, <laughs> holds this big metal door open and others are able to rescue him, you know, right in time. With everything fucked up, they are left under the water with no communication to the top. There's some support systems in bad shape and they've got maybe about 12 hours before things are going to get so bad and so fucking cold that they all die. Lindsay needs to kind of go out into the water to check things out and try and like, see if she can scavenge some stuff to, uh, to, to help with what they've got. But while she's out there, uh, her communication stops working all of a sudden, and then she sees this crazy light, this alien jellyfish thing fly right by her. Something that I think we know must have been what that guy Jammer uh, saw earlier. And then she sees like another like bigger ship thing come by as well. It's very bright, very po- colorful. She touches it, and it's kind of strange. Another little small thing flies by. She gets a picture of that. The others look at the picture, and it's all kind of like, you know, just looks like a blur. You know, you can't even tell what the hell it is. So Bud's obviously skeptical, um, but he's also worried about keeping the crew alive because they're in a fucking terrible situation. It's like, why are we talking about little weird sea creatures right now? Like, fuck this shit. (laughs) Um, So meanwhile, Coffee and another uh, Navy SEAL guy, they're working on the warhead. Um, But Hippie, who is a big conspiracy guy, I kind of like how they set that up. He spies on them. Through use of his one of his little drones, they, they call them Big Geek and Little Geek, which are basically just like little drones that they can send out and uh, that have cameras on them. So he is staring at them through through one of the doors, and he sees that they have a fucking warhead. So he shows it to Bud. Lindsay fight as well, finds out as well, and she is really pissed. Yeah. So she immediately goes over. And Coffee, though, at this point... He's looking particularly wigged out. Oh, yeah, he's gone. Yeah, Michael Bean actually does a really good job of, of looking strung out and just kind of, you know, just that he's he's lost it, you know, and so they, they just kind of leave very, very, ten, uh, you know, contentious issues or, you know, between the two groups. You know, they, they're basically, trust is all gone between the oil crew and the Navy SEALs, but we also see that Coffee was kind of hiding a gun that entire time, so he was ready to protect this warhead. That's, those are his orders. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all good so- soldiers follow orders. Good soldiers follow orders. Good soldiers follow orders. Good soldiers follow orders. 
Good soldiers follow orders. Good soldiers follow orders. Good soldiers follow orders. Good soldiers follow orders. Oh, good soldiers follow orders. That's from um, Clone Wars. And uh, oh. I mean, I'm sure it's from other stuff too, but they say it in that. That's what maybe. Okay. So, all right. Lindsay wants to get a picture of the aliens to, I'm calling them aliens. We don't really, we don't really, really know. Honestly, that's not fully explained. That's what, that's her theory. I, they're, they're aliens. Okay. All right. I think we can, I think we can fairly assume that they're aliens. I mean, okay. I'm just saying it's not really established. You know, they could be just underwater intelligent creatures. Well, but, by the end of the movie, we know. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. I would absolutely say that. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, so later the uh, light creatures come to the rig, but it's not really them. It's uh, they send out in what is another one of the more memorable and definitely like a trailer moment um, where this long water tentacle that they call it that uh, comes from like their little, they call it the moon pool, but it's a little thing that they, it's basically where they can kind of send out their um their their little drones and sh- smaller ships out into the water or submersibles if you will um and it's uh it kind of floats around the rig and then it eventually sees Lindsay and bud and the others see it and it's all kind of it's a nice little like you know first contact mm-hmm. kind of moment where they're trying to determine if this thing is friendly or not and then it it creates the face of Lindsay, and that's a very iconic shot to me yeah of you know, Mary on one side and then her face reproducted on the other. And then it does also bud as well. So, you know, I just think it they're just, they're try, they're communicating right now. So it's cool as it's kind of still floating around. It, it goes around, it heads towards the warhead. So it's also, so it's at the same point, it's also kind of somewhat attracted to that um, coffee then sees it and he freaks out. He closes the door on it, which just makes it splash. Um, I did forget to mention Lindsay stuck her finger in it and it was just seawater. Yeah. Uh, this is so, with this, she kind of establishes that, you know, these creatures, these aliens can manipulate water on a molecular level. That, like, that's them controlling it in that fashion because that wasn't the creature itself. Um, but also we see that Coffee is really fucking lost it because as they're talking under the table, he's got his knife and he's cutting himself. Oh, yeah. That's, so <laughs> he's done. He's pissed. He goes, grabs a gun and, you know... He's pissed off that the thing was near the warhead. And so um, he is pretty much showing signs completely of pressure-induced psychosis is what they've called it. Coffee and his other kind of Navy SEAL guy, the, not the dude. There's two other ones. One is hurt and in med bay, and the other one is kind of still with him, but he's following orders still. So, um, But they uh, hold the crew hostage with some of the guns that they've got. And unfortunately... Because Lindsay wanted to get to go get pictures of it, the crew's drone was just programmed to go straight towards where the aliens are estimated to be, and the SEALs had strapped that warhead to it because they're going to blow them the fuck up because that's what you do with aliens, right? Or I guess they assume it's Russians Yeah, or something. I think they still assume it's the Russians. Yep. Coffee has a creepy but a good line here where, um, you know, he's got them hostage and he specifically goes up to Mary... <laughs> Or sorry, to Lindsay. I say Mary. I, that's that's the actress. Yep. Goes up to Lindsay and says, "This is something I've wanted to do since we first met." <laughs> this is something I've wanted to do since the first time we met. And you think it's going to be really something like rapey? And he rips up some tape and shoves the <laughs> tape over her mouth. Yeah. And I that's pretty damn funny. Yeah. So, 
but one of the other seals um, who was hurt, he knows that they can't detonate this warhead without orders. Uh, you know, it's, so he's he's kind of against what Coffee's doing right now. He thinks he's you know gone rogue or what's the word when they when they do that? He's uh, gone rogue. That sounds right. No, there's a wall. Uh, AWOL, AWOL. AWOL means that you leave the military. Oh, that's it? I yeah. thought AWOL kind of meant you went crazy. No, no, no. AWOL means that you you left the military without, you, like, you just up and leave. Okay. Which I don't know why. I feel like it got a, it got synonymous with going crazy. Oh, man, he's AWOL. But I, maybe that's just, yeah, that's just my ignorance. I just didn't know. Yeah. Okay. I think they call that going crazy. I think they call that, like, Section 8 or something. Okay. So one other thing that this other Navy SEAL mentions is that if this nuclear device goes off, which they set a timer for like three hours or whatever from, from this time. If it goes off, they're not far enough away from it. Mm-hmm. They're all going to die. At this point, all of the uh, crew has been kind of put into a little door that's been watched by one of the other Navy SEAL guys. Lieutenant Coffey went over to just kind of go think on things or something. And the door then opens and we're all like, oh shit, what's going on? Jammer, who got up from, uh, who was in the coma, has got up and he apparently knocked out the other guy uh, who was had the gun in there, and so, um, yay, that's kind of funny. I'm not, I'm not doing a good job of explaining this movie. I feel <laughs> so. Uh, Coffee, and anyway, blocked off some of the paths to get to him. So Bud has to swim from one area to another, and Catfish goes with him. Catfish is kind of like another, you know, he's good. He's a good sidekick yeah. kind of guy in this film. I like him. He's kind of, he's a little bit country. He's a little, he's a little <laughs> bit kind of a big and hoss kind of dude. He's a blue collar da- guy. He's just there to work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They start swimming, and I would never be able to do that, man. Like, unless I knew that I could get back with my air. Yeah, we've already established. Like, <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> so, uh, so Bud presses. So they get to this one section, but the doors to that spot is is uh, jammed, and they can't can't get there. So Bud, so Catfish is like, hey, I can't, I can't go any further. So Bud has to go to the moon pool on his own, and that's where Coffee is at. So Bud gets there. And he tries to sneak up on Coffee and knock him with a pipe. And he was going to do it until he fucking saw the gun in the back. And then he reaches for the gun. Yeah. Just knock him in the head with a pipe, then grab the gun. Yeah, exactly. You had, you had him on surprise until you got too close. and Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so he fucked that up. And so Coffee uh, pulls out the gun, points it at his head. And then he pulls the goddamn trigger, but the gun doesn't work right now. It's either jammed or yeah, it's, uh, maybe the water or something fucked it up from before. Yeah, it's jammed. You can see him. He tries to clear it because he's like uh-huh. running the action really, really fast to try and clear the jam or whatever. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's all the time Bud needed. But yeah, so they fight. They end up fighting. And yeah, so they, they fight, fight back and forth. Coffee has the advantage at one point, and he's about to choke out Bud. But then... From out of nowhere, Catfish punches Coffee. So, yeah, he didn't end up going back. He decided to come and help. He manned up. Hey! Thankfully. Yeah. Um, but uh, Lieutenant Coffee ends up fleeing in one of the submersibles. And it's uh, he's got the drone uh, with the warhead attached to it. Bud then quickly gets into a scuba suit. And Lindsay said she's going to follow in one of the other submersibles to try and go after as well. Uh, so Bud attaches a rope to uh, the drone while they're down there, like, you know, to keep it from going out. So they, they, you know, they're right now we're underwater trying to do, you know, almost like a little action fight scene thing going on here. 
Coffee, you know, at one point's hunting for Bud, trying to ram him. In comes Lindsay to save Bud again. Bud's getting very lucky with people coming in to save him <laughs> right at the last second. Yeah. I will tell you, uh, which knocks Coffee's submersible away. The drone, unfortunately, gets away, though, and we are having a submersible battle between uh, <laughs> Lindsay's one and uh, Coffee's one, So, uh, which, which Bud has now gotten into Lindsay's one with her. This whole action kind of scene ends up with Coffee's submersible being uh, trapped over this edge along with, uh, you know, kind of almost, you know, locked in with Lindsay's, but it ends up going away or, you know, dis- dislodging and falling down this little sea cavern. And he ends up being crushed from the pressure, sucking in. It kind of get implodes on itself. Yeah. A good shot, a good scary little, another little thing. Um, Bud and Lindsay's cab, though, is because of the fight is stuck where it's at. It can't go anywhere. Uh, so, and it's also flooding right now because of as many times as they crashed into each other and hit stuff. So, but obviously was out, had his little swimming suit. So he's, he can be okay, but Lindsay doesn't. She just went in, uh, into the submersible. The water is cold. Obviously it's, uh, it's dangerous. And they're like seven or eight minutes away from, uh, you know, swimming to back to the main rig. I cannot hold my breath that long. No, (laughs) not even close. No, I'm not sure what the record is, but it can't be much more than that or close to it. Yeah, we're going to look at right now. <laughs> Hold breath record. Whoa, that doesn't even seem real. The longest time someone uh, held their breath, 24 minutes. What? And 37 seconds. That does not seem real. No, that does not. A 56-year-old free diver holds breath for almost 25 minutes. I don't. I can't, I can't believe that. Now, granted, that's probably under the absolute best scenarios where they're just holding breath underwater barely and and they or not barely, but they go under and it's, you know, they're not having to exert themselves right. or anything like that. So that could be it. But that's just I don't I don't I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> so Lindsay comes up with this plan that basically she had to to let her to let her drown and then try to recover her when they get back because. Here's, they can't. Here's yeah. where I have an issue. Yeah. Why did they wait for her to drown? <laughs> and why did they not just start back? Like, have her swim as far as she could until she couldn't anymore, and then have him drag her? Because then, at that point, you've shortened the distance. Even if it's a little bit, you've still shortened the distance. I was going to say the same thing. Okay. <laughs> it, did, it didn't make any... You're right. Because she could have maybe held her breath for at least, you know, at least I'd say, at the least... 30 seconds. Yeah. Probably at the you know best, like maybe two, three minutes or something. Um, but then also like as a, you're right as, cause Bud says he can swim there in seven or eight minutes, but that's just swimming on his own. Now he has to carry her right. from the tire distance. Like they could have gotten a good minute, two minutes through. Right. And then gotten closer. And then, you know, he could have just pulled. I, you're right. I'm 100%. It seemed like a flawed plan. Now, was it good for the intensity of the film? Oh, yeah. Because this was this was such an intense scene and such a whew, well-acted scene because, I mean, Mary, or sorry, Lindsay is obviously now, she's letting herself drown as the water is filling up this, mm-hmm. this uh, submersible. And Bud has to just sit there while he's breathing in his tank um, and let her drown. <laughs> Oh my god! Fuck! 
fucking scary so he uh he pulls her back to the main rig and they pull her up and they're trying to revive her um you know they they do the uh emp not the emp what is that thing that they put on your chest um god i shouldn't know that he's they say zapper but you know what i mean everyone knows what i mean when they say when it's zap zap them ekg no that's not an ekg ekg is just the heartbeat thing but anyway so they're doing that. Bud's doing manual CPR. It's not looking good. It's fucking awful. So fucking intense. Everyone's giving Defibrillator. up. Defibrillator. Defibrillator. Well, you know what? We're smart people. I swear, <laughs> I swear we're smart. Yeah, everyone else has given up, but Bud can't handle it. And he he yells at her to fight. He keeps doing st- uh, CPR. He gets pissed at her. And I, I, I think it's a great little line here. He's yelling at her. You've never given up on anything once. Don't give up on this. Yeah. Fight. Come on, breathe, baby. God damn it, breathe. God damn it, you bitch! You never backed away from anything in your life! Now fight! 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 Right now! Do it! Fight, god damn it! And he starts slapping her, and he goes back to the CPR. He's yelling at her, and she eventually, she comes back. Holy fuck. This is probably the scene I remember the most. Yeah, it is. It, it wells me up with um, emotion. Yeah, this scene because you. I mean, the acting is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, in my totally opinion, agree. Ed Harris. Ed Harris is just uh, the emotion that he gives is uh, is pretty incredible. So yeah, I, I definitely get swelled up watching that scene. So it's definitely one of my. I agree, one of my favorites of the of the movie. So unfortunately, though, the crew is still in danger. Yes, crazy Lieutenant Coffee is dead, but. The bomb that he sent off is still timed to go off in in a certain amount of time, and they're too close. So they have to go out there and stop it. So Bud is going to put on this special Navy suit that was kind of brought up to us earlier that uses the fluid, uh, the oxygenated fluid. And he's going to go. Now he's doing it again. Also set up. He's doing it because the guy who kind of runs it has a busted leg. He was the guy. So he can't do it and swim there um, or or go and take care of it. Uh, So Bud is going to do this. So he gets into the suit and it uh, gets filled up uh, with the stuff. And, you know, it's kind of intense seeing like the water go up. He has to start breathing the liquid. I like the little line. We all breathe liquid for nine months, Bud. Your body will remember. You know, you breathe liquid for nine months. uh, You know, your body will remember that. Which is not true. Yeah. I thought I heard it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. uh, When you're, when you're in, uh, when you're a baby in the womb, you're actually, your lungs are not even inflated. All of your oxygen is coming through the umbilical cord. Okay. So part of the reason why doctors get babies to cry, they need them to cry is because that action of, (gasps) inflates their lungs uh okay so w- when sense. you're in the womb your lungs are are not even inflated with air you're not breathing okay. anything yeah there's no breathing you're just getting all of so the umbilical cord brings you your oxygen it brings you like your your nutrition like all that kind of stuff yeah yeah everything okay gotcha and then we just get rid of them like they're nothing <laughs> <laughs> but anyway 
Uh, that's cool. Bud starts descending. He's kind of holding on to this other drone that uh, the little one that is sent to go into the same coordinates as where the warhead is likely at. He starts descending. He's getting deeper and deeper. Uh, we see that the pressure is kind of getting to him. So Lindsay talks to him, tries to calm him down. Um, we see his typing is getting worse. He's hitting down to 17,000 feet. The pressure from the drone, uh, <laughs> the metal on that can't hold it. So it gets kind of imploded on itself. But Bud is still doing okay. Which they, they, they say him doing as this liquid evens out his pressure more than if he had air in his in his body. Mm. So that's that was their whole reason as to why he is doing this oxygenated liquid. So that way he can go to further depths than normal humans would do because uh, the air would, would get sucked out of you or get pushed out of you. And so that's why they do it. Okay. So there's just a, just a little explanation as to why he is in this wild suit. But now with the drone gone, he's basically just kind of free falling. He ends up seeing light everywhere. They all think he's hallucinating. Uh, but he does get to the warhead. Okay. And so the uh, good Navy guy talks him through dismantling the bomb. And he has to cut either the blue or and white wire or the black and yellow wire. <laughs> Which, hard to tell the difference with the, uh, you know, being in a place with no real light. And he's got a very yellow, like, neon-looking yeah. light. To, well, the, to the lights on the, on, the, on the drone that was taken down, they're all in imploded so yeah it couldn't work so, so he, did, he had like a glow stick yeah exactly he had a glow stick exactly so so we have to pick between the two he switches at the last second and he gets it <laughs> Woo! iconic kind of thing yeah. so um unfortunately though so it is oxygenated fluid and it's not like he can just breathe that forever you know it's still his body is still using the oxygen and it's the rest is getting depleted or turned into you know co2 or whatever right. um in there uh, similar, like, you know, fish can't breathe the same water forever. Like, if you have a fish at a fish tank, it, you have to, like, cycle out the water or have, like, you know, things that uh, do it. Because if you literally just keep them in, like, you know, like one of those classic kind of fish bowls and never change the water, they will die yeah. from not having enough oxygen in that water or whatever it is that they're, you know, yeah. that they need. He took him 30 minutes to get down there anyway. He doesn't have enough time to get back. And so, you know, in a very kind of emotional scene, he you know, text because he has this texting thing that he can chat with them or, or just kind of type. And so he says, I'm, I knew this was a one way ticket. Lindsay's obviously upset and she's crying. Uh, but Bud then sees this light alien flying slash swimming towards him. Um, he ext- extends a hand and they fly slash swim together. It takes him to an underwater city and it, uh, they put him in this room with a really cool effect of the water separating out. Yeah. I always liked that effect. It looked really cool. I did, too. I, was kind of, I actually kind of wondered how they did that, too. I have. I wish I knew, <laughs> um, especially at that time. Yeah. Now, it would just be like, well, just do a, do a you know, CGI, you know, put it through, um, and you can create particles to, right. uh, to just manipulate them using computers. Back then, maybe it was still some computer stuff, but maybe it was some practical stuff. So, very interesting. Yeah. But so like, yeah, so they give him like this room so he can actually breathe in he kind of has a little communication with the aliens who show that they've been kind of watching his messages and they actually have a really good understanding, I think, of the English language <laughs> and humans in general, which makes some sense. I think, you know, also they they are, they shown that these aliens are sensitive to like either electrical things or stuff like that, because it's always like the electrical things kind of go out when the aliens are near. So so I guess like maybe they've probably been able to watch our TVs or other, I don't know, whatever the hell it is. Mm-hmm. 
We cut to the day, and that big explorer boat is trying to make contact because the hurricane is now over, and the rig, though, is low on oxygen. Bud then messages them and says he's got some friends, and something uh, is coming up, something big. It's that entire alien city that was under the water is now floating up. You know, we see all these boats that are on top of it from it floating up, and the rigs, it all comes to the top of the surface. And they're all sitting there on top of this big ass alien city, uh, this whatever. Which I have another issue with, uh-huh. because oh, I know exactly what you're going to say because I saw it too. Well, the rig was on yes. the shelf; it yep. was on the it was on the ground, and then all of a sudden, it's now on the ship. You're right. It was they. We have a specific shot where we see the rig is on kind of near uh, this the edge of this cavern, yeah, or whatever it is. It's the same as what the crane fell down, but we see a shot of the alien city coming up from the side of that cavern. Unless it like had its own special arm to grab the rig, put it on top, it wouldn't have just gone on top of it. You're right. I noticed. <laughs> just ridiculous. We're gonna have to imagine that they somehow like tractor beamed it over yeah. something, grabbed it somehow. Who knows? must have? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so out walks Bud. You know he's all safe and sound, and he and Lindsay kiss, and that is the end of our film. So, John, I'd love for you to start us off. I feel like I didn't really do this movie justice going through my breakdown. I didn't have a good little, like, side discussions on it or anything like that. I mean, you know, some things. But how does this movie hold up to you? And and tell me over your overall thoughts of The Abyss. I think this is a vastly undervalued film um, that I think doesn't get talked about a lot. And a lot of people tend to forget. You'll get a lot of people who kind of uh, go, oh, yeah, I remember that movie. Because it didn't do incredibly well at the box office, Mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason, visually speaking, I think the vast majority of effects still held up, um, including the CGI water tentacle, which I thought was fine. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, you get some really, really stellar acting moments, especially from uh, Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Master. Um, (laughs) Someday I'll learn how to say it. Uh, and it's definitely a movie that if you've never seen, um, then why did you listen through our whole breakdown? <laughs> if, if it's been a while since you've seen this one, I think it's definitely worth a revisit. I uh, feel the exact same way. And that's why I felt kind of disappointed in my own breakdown. I didn't feel like we gave our episode so far the justice that The Abyss deserved because this is a good movie. You know, it's not as good as some of the other James Cameron ones that mm-hmm. some of the other guys are going to be talking about. But an overall undervalued, I like how you said put that, undervalued film, and it absolutely is. It's much more dramatic than a lot of those other James Cameron ones that, that we are, you know, we're more into like the action James Cameron. Mm-hmm. But this one has some, definitely some decent action, but really it's the emotion. I think there's great emotion in this film. I ended up seeing, <laughs> I saw a lot of parallels with this movie and Armageddon. Did you, could you, you know, and I'll explain some of that. Okay. Because... You know, obviously you get kind of uh, the military people working with a blue collar oil rigger kind of team. Okay. There's there's that aspect. Um, you have to go to push yourself to extremes. Either it's up into space to help kind of save the world or down below. Now, the, the scale is less in this one because it's the nuclear bomb and the other stuff is about going to just blow up their rig in that area and not kill the entire world like Armageddon. But actually, in one of the first drafts of this one, 
in this movie, James Cameron actually was having that this whole thing kind of this Red Scare Cuban Missile Crisis kind of situation was a much bigger thing that it was going to start doing global thermonuclear war kind of stuff across the world. Mm -hmm. So there's aspects of that. You get one of the characters becomes a kind of almost a de facto villain because they get either it's pressure-induced psychosis, and in Armageddon, it's called space dementia. He's got space dementia. He's got space dementia. <laughs> he goes kind of crazy. I think it's uh, Steve Buscemi. He's not really a villain, but he starts doing crazy shit. Yep. Uh, and then, without question, the Ed Harris going to you know save and stop the bomb by himself you know, which, you know, you know, martyr himself out, which he ends up getting saved. But in Armageddon, they have Bruce Willis go out and he has to arm the bomb, um, you know, as opposed to stopping the bomb, he arms the bomb and they go off and he martyrs himself and saves everybody else. I feel like there's a lot. I mean, it's just there's differences, of course. Yeah. But I think there's a like the main beats and like some of the main things tend to fall into the same line to me. So huh, I never yeah. would have made that connection. Yeah. Except for, you yeah, know, they don't have the whole alien situation right. in Armageddon, but. Uh, but anyway, I really, really enjoyed rewatching this movie. I hadn't seen it in a long time. I can't really even remember the last time I saw it. I'm really happy to have revisited it. And if you guys, you know, yeah, if you've gotten this far in this uh, in this podcast so far, absolutely go back and rewatch The Abyss. All right, now we are going to talk the 2000 to 2002 show called Dark Angel. Two seasons on Fox, 42 episodes. As I mentioned, it was created by James Cameron, but also created by Charles Egley. Uh, he created two shows no one's ever heard of, really, called Total Security and Murder One. Uh, but he also wrote for some other bigger shows that you'd probably recognize, uh, Moonlighting and St. Elsewhere back in the day, but also The Shield and Dexter. Okay. The cast on Dark Angel. Max is played by Jessica Alba. Uh, this was kind of one of her bigger roles earlier on. She had that show Idle Hands in like 99 and then maybe like a couple other small bits. Uh, this kind of got her more into like the action side of it. I feel like this was our big introduction to her. Yeah, Idle Hands was kind of like a, you know, uh, smaller comedy kind of film. It wasn't really a bigger thing, but this was, this had like hype around it as a James Cameron TV show. Mm -hmm. And so I agree. This was kind of the thing that really brought Jessica Alba into pop culture and especially for like kind of big name, badass female lead. Uh, but you also, I mean, you know, Jessica Alba from Sin City, Fantastic Four, a bunch of stuff and also my dreams. She's, <laughs> she's in there quite a bit. Uh, Logan is played by Michael Weatherly, who uh, he's the main character on that show Bull. If you've seen that recently or heard of that, uh, not well. First of all, he is Denozo from NCIS, and will always be Denozo from NCIS yes, for me. I, I, I was going to mention NCIS was the next was the main other thing yeah, besides. He Bull. left NCIS to do Bull. Okay, do you watch Bull at all? Because you're you're an NCIS fan, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't. We haven't watched any new episodes in a long time, but. Uh, uh, we did. We watched the first season of Bull. It was fine. Uh -huh. It was good. I mean, uh, it's a it's a lot like any of the other procedural shows. After we watched the first season, yeah. we're like, okay, we probably don't need to watch this ever again. Got it. Yeah, <laughs> he's gonna solve all the things, and it's whatever. an interesting concept because okay. Bull's whole thing is that he's not necessarily a lawyer. He his job uh -huh. is getting people to pick the right juries and figure oh, out what the juries okay. are gonna do. It's an interesting concept. I how the fuck have they made 
a hundred, 103 episodes of, of picking lawyers <laughs> or picking juries. Yeah, essentially. Okay. I mean, there's All more right, to it than that, but yeah. Yeah. And, and yes, and he was on over 300 episodes of NCIS. So yes, those are the two main things. Um, and then some other people, I'm just going to mention Normal was played by JC McKenzie. Original Cindy was played by Valerie Ray Miller. And Sketchy was played by Richard Gunn. They all had small parts and different things, but nothing I really recognized them from. Yeah. So uh, There were, in season two, a couple actual actors that I did recognize. Uh, Jensen Ackles, who would be later bigly, bigly <laughs> known for his show uh, Supernatural. Yep. He was on this. And then also Kevin Durand, oh, yeah. uh, who was a really good kind of side actor, kind of a big guy. He was in uh, season two as well. So the show is set in 2019. Uh, which it's always kind of fun rethinking about like, you know, oh man, 2019 was not like this at all. Much more 2020. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, no, it's kind of like almost like a post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, world that they're living in specifically at Seattle. Um, and it's, this chronicles the life of Max, uh, who is a runaway genetic, genetically enhanced super soldier, uh, who escapes from a military facility as a child. And so now she's trying to like, you know, lead a normal life and elude capture by the government agents and just also search for her fellow brother and sister super soldiers who are kind of scheduled or like scattered around, you know, the world or whatever. So, I mean, that's kind of an interesting concept, but yeah, so, so it's kind of set, set in the future and post post-apocalyptic kind of, you know, everything's bad. Sort of, of well, like apparently like an EMP was like took out all of the fine, like basically wiped off all the financials and, in the uh, U.S., okay. more or less, I think. That, I think that was sort of the the idea of you know there was a big financial collapse. We've seen what that was like. Got it. That's what I took out of it. Okay, cool. Cameron was actually apparently influenced by the manga Battle Angel Alita okay. uh, for this one, and he originally was uh, attempting or into, he originally intended to adapt that into a film after completing Dark Angel, which. Eventually did happen. Actually, in 2019, he uh, did write and produce Alita Battle Angel, that movie that came out. I did so, not yeah. see that one. Me neither. It did not look particularly anything special to me. Was that the one that was uh, directed by uh, Robert Rodriguez? Uh, that one? Or am I thinking of a different one? No, you're right. That was directed by Rodriguez. Okay. So, yeah. But, yeah, James Cameron wrote the screenplay and was a was a director. Or, sorry, was a producer okay. on it. So, yeah, okay. Cool. I mean, if it's got James Cameron, Robert Rodriguez, also I see Christoph Waltz and Mahershala Ali. I don't know why I haven't seen this or why I, I wouldn't. I, had, I didn't hear particularly good things, but I think a lot of times, like Hollywood has not had a very good track record of converting uh, manga and anime into live action movies. Mm-hmm. And I think this was one where the hardcore fans did not like it, and so it didn't get a lot of good press. It didn't really interest me uh-huh. when I saw the, uh, you know, the ads for it. But it, it might be one worth like just watching to see for myself. Is it really that bad? Yeah, Jackie Earl Haley's in it. Ed Screen or Scrine, um, Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, I, you know what? I might take the time if I have like you know a weekend and I don't have much going on, and I see that this is on, you know, Hulu or Netflix or HBO Max or something. I might, I might make the time for this because I respect. A lot of the names in this one. Yeah. There was also a video game that came out with Dark Angel after the show. It came out in 2002, uh, but the game got really bad reviews. Uh, one of the gaming magazines gave it a D plus, 
uh, and then the other one gave like a three point something out of ten stars. Like oh, it was apparently geez. not a very good game. Yeah. So, uh, and there was also some novels. Like three novels were written as an expanse onto the TV series, but ended up really not going anywhere. The show itself is very hard to find. Yeah, uh, at yes. least it's it's nowhere. Literally, it is nowhere on streaming. Not even you can't even rent it on iTunes or rent it on Amazon Prime. Um, you have to find it through YouTube or Daily Motion. That's the only way I found it. And the quality is not top notch. Uh, yeah, I agree. If you're missing your Dark Angel fix, then you've got to hopefully go find the DVDs yeah. or figure out something else. So I also couldn't find episode one. What about you? I was I was specifically trying to find it and I couldn't find oh, it. I actually found it. In fact, that was the only one I watched. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I watched, I think it was season one, episode three, and I watched the full thing. I didn't watch anything further because right. I felt like I got the gist yeah. is what I needed. Um, but okay, so you did find season one, episode one. Yes. Okay, cool. Because I didn't know about the EMP thing, and so maybe that maybe that happened in that episode or something. Yeah, that's when they mentioned it. Okay, cool. The show itself is definitely more of a drama. I honestly kind of went into it almost expecting like a Buffy style. Yeah. You know, because in this time, there was a lot of these kind of shows. Like Buffy started off in like the late 90s, I think it was. I'd say badass, badass attractive females, right. like leading some of these shows. You get Buffy, you get this one. Alias came out, I think a year after this one. Um, so like those kind of shows were fairly popular at this time. Um, but this one, it didn't have any of like much of that humor. It was much more of a legit action and drama kind of show. One of the things about the show uh, was the theme song. Kind of curious about your thoughts on that theme song. Honestly, I don't even remember. Yeah, it, funny enough, like it—it it was uh, composed by Chuck D of Public Enemy oh, wow. and also Gary G. Wiz, who was a producer for Public Enemy. But I'm with you. Like the the theme song itself wasn't memorable. It's kind of maybe fine, kind of funky, futuristic with like a female voice on it. But like it wasn't anything special. And so when I saw that, like some real big names that I had heard of before were part of it, I was like, oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> And then one other last little thing I've got about Dark Angel is that uh, a critic mentioned that, uh, so it only lasted the two seasons. It got decent reviews and decent viewership in that first season, um, but the second season actually ended up struggling because of a couple different factors, as this critic kind of mentioned, some of them being September 11th, um, the Enron scandal, and then also the U.S. economy kind of falling to shit to, uh, you know, in the after. Um, 9-11 a little bit mm. to the point where the futuristic vision of uh, the recession of third world America in Dark Angel, um, it went from an interesting far-fetched premise to something that became a depressing reminder that things could all get worse. <laughs> like that's, and it kind of, I think people were like, yeah, this is no longer a post-apocalyptic life. It's, it's real. And I don't want to be remembered by, or, or, you know, constantly reminded by that. <laughs> so, so I think all that kind of led to the decline. And so it, Got canceled after its second season. Um, and yeah, so did you watch Dark Angel at all when you were younger? No, I was aware of it. I was definitely uh, you know culturally aware of it, but it was not a show that interests me. 
Um, I kind of watched Buffy a little bit, um, mm. mostly with us as a family. Like that kind of became our show yeah. to watch. But I didn't really go beyond that. So I didn't watch Angel. I didn't watch uh, Dark Angel. I didn't watch Alias. I never, I, you know, around this time I was in college, so I didn't have mm-hmm. access to even like normal television shows. I was just watching whatever DVDs I had. Um, yeah. And you know, trolling the internet for Napster downloads and shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I also didn't watch Dark Angel. Uh, aware of it. Aware of you know. Okay, yeah, these badass, sexy females are on my TV shows, and that's cool. Um, but it's not one that I really checked out all that much. Yeah. Um, I did like her motorcycle though. Yeah. She, oh yeah. The design was cool. I agree. Uh, motorcycle design was cool. Like, she wore a lot of leathery, dark um, stuff in general. I had no problems with that. (laughs) The show itself, I'll jump in with my thoughts first. I have nothing else really to add because it's not from all that that much of my nostalgia. I didn't dislike the show. I will say, but I also didn't like the show watching it. It, I, I didn't. It didn't come across as particularly bad. The episode that I watched, but overall, it it just came across almost kind of bland for its whole concept. I had no issues really with the acting. Jessica Alba's fighting maybe wasn't the best from what I saw. Yeah. I'll say that. But this is also one of her first shows, and she hasn't really done too much of like that action kind of stuff before this. If if you were a fan of Dark Angel and you come across the DVD set at like a secondhand store or something, might be worth your time. But if you've never seen the show before, I doubt you're going to enjoy it because I can say I watched it and I like James Cameron. I like badass females. I like Jessica Alba, all that kind of stuff. And it just didn't really grip me. So I had largely the exact same reaction Oh, where okay. I was like, I'm not hating this as I'm watching it, but like it wasn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't really suck me in to want to watch more of it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't after one episode, I, was, I knew I was going to have to hunt for something. So I was like, yeah. eh, I think I get the gist of it. I don't really need to see it anymore. So uh, obviously not having that nostalgic tie does hurt that. But uh, yeah, probably not one I needed to see. Fair enough. This episode of the Blast From Our Past podcast is not brought to you by... Terminator! I'm back! Got to find John Connor. But evil T-1000 gets to him first! Hey, back off! Terminator's heavy metal cycle zeroes in and fires! Uh, But T-1000 stands to get even! This is for getting on my bad side! You're next, John Connor! I'm back! Terminator deploys his secret weapon! Hasta la vista, baby! Terminator! This time! Terminator is back! All right, and now we're going to do the casting portion of the show. As we mentioned at the top, we are going to recast Abyss, or The Abyss, excuse me, using actors of today. Uh, we are going to recast the characters of Bud, Lindsay, Lieutenant Coffee, One Night, Catfish, and Hippie. I did not remember the other guys having like these goofy names. I know they're all nicknames, yeah. but I didn't remember that until this, this go-around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't rem- remember that at least until, um, yeah, rewatching it this time. And some of them I, I particularly like is One Night because uh, her name, the character's name in the movie is uh, Lisa Standing. And so they call her One Night for One Night Stand, uh, One Night <laughs> yeah. Standing. So that's cute. I thought that was That's cute. fine. 
Uh, so we'll do those six characters. Um, we probably could have done more, but those were kind of the bigger ones that we felt like we could do. Yeah. So let's go ahead and start with Hippie, who is the one who had the rat. Yes. And I will jump in. I'm not going to lie. I ended up doing a lot of kind of one-to-one casting. Okay. I'm I'm not particularly – first of all, I found this one particularly hard to recast, partially because, God, there's no one really like Ed Harris. I was trying to go that route, and I just ended up going with, okay, that's good enough. So uh, a lot of these characters I kind of did one-to-one castings of just other people who were similar to them, actually in some cases kind of looked like them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, I, for my hippie, I for some reason this guy immediately popped into my head when I saw it or when I saw the guy or the original actor. So I went with uh, Pete Davidson. Oh, okay. I don't love Pete Davidson, but I can understand. I don't either. Yeah, I, I don't even find him funny, and I don't think he's probably a good enough actor, even though you don't need a great actor for that role. But I understand the look yeah. choice. <laughs> okay. if, you're going, if you're going on look, I get that. Okay. That, yeah. That's largely what I I went for. Like I said, I'm not I'm not entirely like hugely happy with my casting. There's some there's uh-huh. some good ones I think I have in here, but overall I think I'm kind of lukewarm. Okay, so, all right. All right, who did you go with? Uh, I wanted somebody who I thought could I don't know look look like a nerd because because that that's how I got I got hippie mm-hmm. hippie's not a nerd really, but he's got like the skinny kind of. Look kind of geeky, I would say more than nerd, if that makes any sense. So I looked through a couple different people, and I ended up going. He's probably you know he's a fairly big name, but I think he does a lot of side enough characters. I went with Logan Lerman as my uh, hippie. He's kind of a skinnyish kind of guy. I think so I've I used think him for something way back in the day. Uh, probably I did, and I'm trying to remember exactly what I remember him from. I remember him best from Perks of Being a Wallflower. But okay, I've never seen that. I don't know his stuff. I don't really know him okay. as an actor, at least not off of what I'm seeing. I don't see anything that I'm looking at. I mean, he's done some stuff. He was in Fury. Did you see Fury? I never did. I'm not like a big, big war movie guy. Uh, I am on occasions. Um, I, I would say he was in Percy Jackson. I saw Percy Jackson probably yeah, because I was, was required Jackson, to. Because I don't know, I think someone showed it in a class once that I had to uh-huh. sub, not sub, or I was watching or whatever. But yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't have anything. Okay. Oh God, his first movie was The Patriot. Oh shit, way back. Yeah, he probably played probably one of the 2000. little kids or something. Pro- yeah, probably. I'm fine with that, just based on the on the name. Okay, uh, I'll take that. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's go to Catfish, who was kind of the big good old boy who kind of uh, clocked Lieutenant Coffee in the moon in the moon bay. And who did you go with? I was looking around, um, and I ended up going with an actor who I actually haven't really seen in much, but I love his credits. Um, he's had some smaller roles in Lincoln, in Selma. Uh, oh, he was in 84 episodes of Fear the Walking Dead, which I never saw. Did you watch Fear the Walking Dead? I watched, like, the f- part of the first season. Okay. All right. Well, he's, I don't know if he was in that earlier stuff. Maybe. Um, but he's 6'2", and I think he could have the vibes that I'm looking for. Uh, his name is Coleman Domingo. That's C-O-L-M-A-N. All right. Not, there's no... Good looking e. dude. Looks like, looks like yeah. a big guy. Exactly. He, he has that look, so I think he could kind of be like the side friend um, as needed. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. Okay. Um, I did go with a little bit more of a bigger name. Okay. I saw him. He was actually speaking of Walking Dead. He was in the uh, the Walking Dead and in, in uh, some of the later seasons. I I quit after like a few seasons ago, so I'm not sure if he's still on or or if they finally kill off his character or whatever. But in in the Walking Dead, you don't actually see his face. Um, but he was also in Sons of Anarchy and in Remember the Titans. I went with Ryan Hurst. Oh, yeah, I know Ryan. I, I love that. I think that fits really, really well. I mean, he already played that. He played that role exactly kind of, I feel, in Sons of Anarchy. Okay. Um, as, as kind of like a side to uh, Jax in that show. I've never seen the show, so I actually didn't know what his role was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but, I mean, he has, you know, I mean, he has his own little things, too. But, um yeah, I mean, yeah, he's in, in Remember the Titans, he's the guy who gets hurt and he everybody remembers him and he kind of, kind of gets up from his hospital. PD! He's yelling that when uh, Donald Faison's running. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, no, I think Ryan Hurst actually is a fantastic call for Okay, that. cool. Yeah. Uh, all right, One Night. One Night. One Night, I, I was a character I kind of re-fell in love with watching this. She's pretty funny. Yeah, uh, it was it was nice. Um, God, the, the her her crying when Lindsay comes back was yeah. really kind of emotional. Even though she's just in the background, but she's she's dead center, uh, kind of in that in that profile shot when that's kind of happening. And so yeah, because she's the one she's the one who's doing the defib yeah. on her. Yep. She immediately reminded me of an actress I knew, and I was like, you know what? I, I think I can kind of one to one this without any issues. I went with Uzo Aduba. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From um, Orange is the New Black. Uh, Orange is the New Black. Yeah. I wish I would have thought of that. That's a good one. I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> I like that. I, I like that better than mine. Oh, okay. But I, I don't dislike mine, but I think I, I want to see Uzo Aduba in more things. Yeah. Absolutely. She got a lot of critical acclaim for essentially mm-hmm. a role that was only supposed to be a throwaway role. That was yeah. not even supposed to be a, a, a reoccurring character, and they loved her so much in it that that it became a reoccurring character. And and you enjoyed Crazy Eyes oh, yeah. for sure. Like I'm, yeah, she's won three Emmys. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm sure it's because of that character. Yeah. That's pretty pretty incredible. Uh, yep, I like that one a lot. I went with because of some of the comedy aspects. Um, it's kind of why I think I tied into my actress. She's best known as a child star. But she is still doing a lot of other stuff. She hasn't done too much like dramatic acting that I've seen, but I'm sure she could because uh, she's been acting since hell. She's freaking pretty much since she's been um, a real young, young kid in, uh, uh, I think it was the Cosby show when we first saw her. But uh, I went with Raven Simone. Okay. As my one night. Oh, wow. Uh, man, I haven't thought of Raven Simone <laughs> forever. Yeah. She, I mean, I, she, she's a, she plays Anthony Anderson's sister in Blackish, so she keeps kind of, she pops up in my, um, <laughs> you know, mentality every now and then. But she's still kind of doing like the cheesy Disney comedy shows. Uh, I think recently she's been on that trick, but I, you know, I'm sure she could do it. I'm sure she could do it. From, from some of the stuff I've seen, you know, in Blackish and other stuff, I think, um, I think she would be solid. Okay. I'm okay. totally fine with that. Okay, cool. Uh, all right, Lieutenant Coffee, our, our essentially our big bad for this. Yeah. Uh, who did you go with? 
I I was looking around for like just like some I looked for our our best current actors. That's who I that's literally like what I was checking mm-hmm. in is like all right because I actually I think Michael Bean did a fantastic job of kind of diving into madness. Oh yeah. And I'm I'm not so used really, to seeing him as a bad guy a lot, so or especially correct. in the 80s. Yep. So I, uh, I I wanted to try and find someone who I think could have a you know a, a militant look as needed. Um, I absolutely think he could do that. Um, I, actually, I don't think I've seen him in like a military look all that much, but I've seen him in plenty of stuff between Black Klansmen. And I've cast him before um, in Ballers. I have not seen him in Tenant. Um, that is the most recent. Christopher Nolan film, which I fucking love Christopher Nolan, so I need to watch this one. Uh, but I went with uh, Jonathan da- John David Washington. Okay. He's a great actor. Yeah. He, is, he is one of, I think, our premier actors right now. Uh, and so I thought he could do a really damn good job of diving into like the, the pressure-induced psychosis. Yeah. I mean, I, so, I, yeah. I'm not going to say anything bad about him. He's, he's killing yeah. it right now with all the stuff he he's really doing. Is. So I'm, I'm yep. fine with that. Um, okay, I cool. went with somebody who has done the military look Fair. type thing, and we've seen him both as a good guy and as a bad guy, so I knew he could do either. I don't really have to add too much to him. I think you'll kind of understand why I picked him. It would be funny to see him with just a mustache, though. I don't know if I've ever <laughs> yeah, seen him oh God, with just that. Uh, I went with John <laughs> Bernthal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen – you're right. I've seen him do both, and he he's intimidating as both. Yeah. So – uh yeah, I, I I think that's a very good one to one. Yeah, fit. it wasn't a stretch, but I, I don't think it was no. one where I was gonna hear a lot of blowback. Essentially, nope, definitely no blowback. He's great. All right, Lindsay. God, this was the one I had the hardest time casting. Yeah, um, because uh, you know, Mary. I'm just gonna call her Mary. Uh, <laughs> Mary killed it. I think in this role, she did. she she got to do a lot of emotion, as you said. So I had a hard time uh, finding this one, and I wanted to pick someone I hadn't used before. And so Mm. uh, I went with an actress who she's best known for kind of her late 2000s, early 2010s TV work. Um, She has been in uh, the Marvel Universe, but you don't really get to see her all that much. So I thought it'd be fun to see her stretch a little bit. I went with Kobe Smulders. Okay, yeah, Maria Hill. Everybody knows her from uh, Himium, How I Met Your Mother. Okay. I can, I can, I could see that. Yeah, not like an overwhelming pick, but one where it's like, yeah. okay, I could see them giving her a shot in something like this. Yes, I, she, she could, could see her giving the shot. I haven't seen her dominate the screen like Mary, whatever your last name. <laughs> sorry, uh, like Mary. She really, when she got yeah. on screen, she was really good on screen. So I haven't seen that from Colby Smolders, but I'd, I'd be interesting, interested in giving her that shot. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, then who did you pick? Uh, I went with an actress who does command the respect on screen uh, that I saw when I was watching The Abyss uh, that Lindsay commands. Um, she has, she's got all the range that you could ever ask for, and so I think she could do this role and show exactly what we need from it. I went with Natalie Portman. Okay, that's a better call than mine, <laughs> as <Yeah>. far as <laughs> okay acting thing. I, I think I, I know I could see. I, I, she she comes across intelligent enough, like uh, Mary did mm-hmm. as Lindsay, to where she's like, "Well, yeah, I designed this thing. I know what the fuck I'm doing." Natalie Portman, I feel I could get that same kind of vibe from that she could come on, even though she is a smaller, um, you know, petite size 
person, she could come in and still dominate the screen, you know, dominate the scene as needed. Okay. So. I'm fine with that. Yep. I'm fine with that. Okay, cool. Uh, all right, bud. I'm interested to hear about this one because Ed Harris is kind of like an unlikely lead. <laughs> yeah. But he's so good anytime he is. He um, is yep. So this one was going to be tough. And I want to hear your pick first. Sure. I'm happy enough with my pick, but yeah, similar to, I guess, how you said it, it's kind of, it's hard to get what you need. There's a lot of, I feel like a lot of people can connect to Ed Harris mm-hmm. just because he, he he gives off like kind of, yeah, that blue collar vibe really well, even though he does all kinds of acting really fucking yeah. well. So, but somebody who can, who can handle some of the intense scenes that, that have to be on here. I went with an actor who is one of our one you know one of our main guy actors. I don't know. I, I just I just felt that he could give the performance that I needed. I could see you know him and uh, him acting opposite Natalie Portman and doing a good job with uh, against her. Uh, I went with Michael Fassbender as my bud. Okay. I yeah. yeah. I I can see that. I okay. can see that. I think that's a smart call. I had yeah I I had trouble like as weird as it sounds I had trouble not picking a bald person because Ed Harris is you know he he's got that look does. to him and so it's like do I need to stick to that look uh, but then I kind of once I was looking through stuff I saw Fastbender I was like you know what I th- you know he could give the performance I need so yeah. <laughs> okay um I did kind of go for that look okay I, <laughs> fair enough um but I I didn't because I didn't want it to be like your typical leading guy, especially nowadays, you know, all, all the kind of the, the Marvel guys, all the ripped, you know. Yeah. So I wanted to go with an unlikely person because Ed Harris is kind of like, he's an unlikely lead, but he kills it when you do. Um, and this guy has done a range of things from serious to straight up comedy. Mm-hmm. But I still think he's good enough and he's a little bit older. I think he's in the late 40s now, but I don't think that matters too much. No, Ed Harris was in like, uh, he was like 39, but he looked like 50. Like <laughs> Harris, Harris, Ed Harris is always kind of, and, and we already talked about it. People like 30 plus years ago, yeah, they look older. Yeah. They just do. I went with Walton Goggins. Oh, okay. I mean, I'll tie in the not typical lead. Yeah. Uh, Walton Goggins is not typical lead, but when it comes to acting ability, absolutely give that to him. Yeah, I've seen him do all types of stuff. Yeah, I mean, he was. I um, didn't so see Justified, but I heard that was really good. Yeah, I heard as well. Um, and a lot of the stuff I actually have seen him in lately has been comedy stuff. Com- yeah, he's done quite a bit of comedy stuff recently. So, yeah, but uh, he just seemed like that. He's the, he's one of those unlikely leads who could who could yeah. probably lead the film. I'll give it okay. to you. I'll give it to you. I I went with probably what Hollywood would pick much I more. I agree. I totally agree. Typically, yeah. So, but I, but do I think uh, Walton Goggins has the ability? Fuck yes, I do. Okay. All right. Well, that was our recasting of The Abyss. Please join us next time as we continue down this uh, sci-fi rabbit hole, if you will, as John and Adam go over their top 10 sci-fi movies of the 20th century. 
If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at blastfromourpast at gmail.com. And if you want to suggest a movie or TV show from your childhood or to be a guest on the podcast, go over to patreon.com backslash blastpastcast and pick a tier that works for you. To find us on social media, search for at blastpastcast. So until next time, I'm John. And I'm Adam. And thanks for joining us. See you next time. I'm John, and I'm the host of Action Action. Every week, I'm joined by James. hey And Dustin. Hello. And each week, we review, debate, and rank a different action movie. We're creating the ultimate list of action movies. From awful to awesome. So if you want to hear three more white guys with beards talk about action movies. And argue about where they belong on our list. And decide you hate us because we've made fun of your favorite movie. Join us every Tuesday, and you can find us on your favorite podcatcher. And Steven Seagal is a joke.